0: Hello and welcome to Parkinson's Pathway Pals, Tuesdays with Teresa. I'm Teresa Jackson, your podcast host. Today my guest is Dr. Maria DeLeon. Dr. DeLeon is a retired movement disorder specialist. She's a best-selling author of Parkinson's Diva, A Woman's Guide to Parkinson's, and she is a person living with Parkinson's. Dr. DeLeon is a research advocate who works on improving diversity in PD research she initiated Movement in Gender Differences in PD, working with women with PD around the globe to become more empowered. Welcome, Dr. DeLeon.
1: Thank you so much, Teresa, for having me here.
0: Yeah, I'm excited. I'm I'm very excited um, to interview you. I'd like to start out with, you are a movement disorder specialist, and I want to make sure that our audience knows what that really means. So if you might offer up an an explanation of the difference between a general neurologist and a movement disorder specialist.
1: Yes, well, thank you, Teresa. Um, Well, a neurologist, as you know, is a specialist that um, deals with the neurologic diseases of the brain and body, the peripheral and central nervous system. Um, And then, like in medicine, you have an option to specialize uh, in different things. You can either specialize in headaches or seizures or, um, you know, muscle disease. And I chose to specialize in an area um, that is called movement disorders. And that entails people that have Tourette's or tics. Uh, people that have essential tremors and Parkinson's is the second um, largest cause of movement disorder. So I am um, by, I guess, choice a Parkinson's specialist, but in general movement disorders, I treated all kinds of uh, uh, disorders that had to do with movement. Um, And so that meant that I did a two year fellowship after I finished my neurology training.
0: Very good. So a lot more specialized and very focused in a certain area on movement. So tell us why it's important that if someone has been diagnosed with a Parkinson's disease diagnosis, why is it important that they see a movement disorder specialist as opposed to a general neurologist?
1: Well, I think that, you know, um, neurologists in general can diagnose Parkinson's and can treat Parkinson's. However, the reason that anybody goes to a specialist uh, is because those are the people that have more experience, both, you know, knowledge and experience uh, with training and seeing patients. So they are more aware of the subtleties of the disease, when it changes, they're more aware of the new treatments, the research available in the area. Uh, and so if um, at any point, I think that a person with Parkinson should at least once a year try to see a movement disorder specialist, especially if they're not well controlled or they're having problems in their function of their daily living, because they may be able to offer Uh, better treatment, guidance, and see the subtleties or the nuances that general neurologists may not be able to see. Uh, And so that's why it's important. It's like, you know, if you have a a fancy car, you don't take it to your regular mechanic, you take it to the dealership. And so it's the same thing. If you're having some uh, neurologic disease that entails the movement disorder, entails Parkinson's, you wanna see at least once see somebody that deals in that area that can give you a diagnosis and a prognosis uh, of what um, you know the diseases and also the medication and treatments available?
0: Yeah, I know for my own, you know I was diagnosed in February of 2019 and I know from my own experience that my particular movement disorder specialist, his um, clinic sees about 2,000 patients a year. And when you think about that versus what a general neurologist might see, I think you mentioned like they could see seizures or tics or any sort of right. neurology issue. They they just don't see the, the volume that a movement disorder specialist would see. So um, they just have a different level of experience and exposure to, to exactly. Parkinson's patients. Exactly. And not
1: every neurologist, you know, some neurologists may prefer seeing more migraines some may prefer seeing more back pain. So they may not have the the experience of having the volume of patients that they can detect early onset or when there's changes or need for new medication or, or what the new science is behind uh, the, the diagnosis of Parkinson's. So that's why it's important to, to see a specialist uh, in that area from time to time.
0: All right. Well, I love your book. I think the cover of it is beautiful. and I think Thank it's, you very much. You're welcome. I think it's chock full of really good information, and we're going to get to some of that here in a little bit. But I'm just kind of curious. Tell us how you decided on your title, Parkinson's Diva, A Woman's <laughs> Guide to Parkinson's Disease. Tell me about that.
1: Yeah, it, well, it's funny because, um, you know, for the longest I decided that I wanted to write something for Parkinson's because I didn't think that there was enough information out there. Um, and it came to me when I was, after I was diagnosed being a young woman with Parkinson's that, you know, not only was there not a lot of information about women, about Parkinson's and women, but young Parkinson's and women uh, dealing with marriage and sexual issues and, and children and things like that. So that's why I decided that uh, we needed to, to look at those because women, uh, have different issues when dealing with this condition and also realize that I think hormones play an important part uh, in the treatment, the diagnosis, and the, the way the medications work. And so thinking about a women's book, I thought I didn't want it to look, and this was not gonna be uh, a book for for the professionals. So I decided this was gonna book, you know, for women to read and to, to enjoy and to, to try to um, be, empowered and and look within to to have a full life because i was really sad and disappointed to hear women that have had parkinson's for a while and they say you know the last time i went to the beauty salon you know the last time i put on a lipstick you know Mm -hmm. ever since i've had a diagnosis of parkinson's so we are women first and then have parkinson's we're moms and you know wives so so i wanted a book that was going to talk to the women it was not going to be a professional book. And so I didn't want it to look like all the other professional Parkinson's books, you know, just like blah. So I wanted it to stand out. So, of course, I love red, and I had to have a girl, a woman, that say, you know, somebody would be inclined to look at that picture and say, hey, what is this book about? And, you know, in deciding a title, uh, my family's always called me a diva, you know, on the, you know, on the side, because they think I'm, you know, special and um, – but one when, when I was really sick one time early on in my diagnosis, um, I was having a lot of uh, issues. I had, had uh surgery and I was having a urine infection and I was just down with my Parkinson's got worse with the infection and, and dealing with that. And so a friend of mine um, who, by the way, her mom had been one of my patients and had uh, had, had Parkinson. so we were, you know, we had developed that connection. She came over and she said, I decided that you were going to, we're just gonna throw a party today. And so she brought tiaras and, and um, boas and, you know, bling, and we had a little party. So it was the best fun we've ever had. Reminded me of, you know, our childhood tea parties and, and dressing up. And I was telling her, you know, it's like even though uh, I have Parkinson's and I can barely move and I've been sick, you know, I still like to wear my fancy shoes and put on my, you know, my lipstick and and my jewelry. And so she said, you know, you're just a diva, the Parkinson's diva. And and so I thought, oh, that's interesting. So we had a picture, you know, I bought this T-shirt that said... I make Parkinson's look sexy. So I had it on, and then I put my tiara, and I got to send you that picture, put my tiara, and said, you know, this is what I want women to feel like, to look like, even though they have Parkinson's. And so I started thinking about that, and I thought, oh, that'd be too much. You know, people are going to think this is a silly book or a cheeky book, you know. But then I, I started researching, and one of the definitions of a diva that I really like and I incorporate in the book is that they use their uh, abilities for extraordinary things. You know, their ordinary abilities, their ordinary things to do extraordinary things. So I thought, that's us with Parkinson's. You know, we are just, you know, having a disease, we're barely getting by, but we're having to use what we have within to do extraordinary things and to be able to continue being moms and wives and, and, and professionals and so on. But also thinking about what we do um, as Parkinson's patients, we always ask patients to talk loud and to do movements loud, to exaggerate big things. So a diva, again, in a way, is grand and is big, and so that's why I settled on the Parkinson's diva because it's got all those different connections. It's me uh, being a diva and always being, you know, um, kind of a leader in the Parkinson's world, but. But also, um, I want women to feel like divas. I want women to feel that they're beautiful and smart and that they have, you know, things to, to give and show despite the fact that we have to live with Parkinson's. So, and that sometimes, yeah, we have to be a little louder. We have to do things in a big way uh, to be able to, to continue our lives. But, but that is a motto to do extraordinary things with, with what we've given. So...
0: Well, I love it. I think it's a a beautiful looking book and invites people to read. So I I happen to love it very much. I'm going to shift us to something, I guess, a little bit more serious. Um, I know that you mentioned it took two years when I was reading your book for you to receive your own diagnosis. And I'm wondering if you can just take us back to that time and share your experience of, you know, what was it like receiving a diagnosis for the very disease that you treated?
1: Yeah, that was that was uh, ironic and a whole um, learning experience. I like I said, I went to medical school because I wanted to treat patients with Parkinson's. and my grandmother developed Parkinson's, and I was her caregiver. Um, and so in the midst of all that, I. Realized that I started having problems myself and doing the finger taps and the, you know, the open and close when I was examining patients, my handwriting was changing and I, you know, I started, instead of looking at pain, I started looking at my own hands going like, okay, I'm having trouble doing this. I was having trouble uh, walking in tandem, balancing. So I thought, oh my God, I'm getting Parkinson's. And of course I was thinking, you know, I'm 36 years old. How could I be having this? Uh, You know? So, but in the meantime, I started having a lot of pain and a lot of um, visual difficulties. Um, I was running into things. I could not uh, gauge distance, especially in nighttime. I have run, I almost got into two accidents, you know, one with an 18 wheeler because I could not tell how far, uh, how far away he was when I was going to, to see patients in the middle of the night. And the funny part was that I would go to um, the doctor, to the ophthalmologist and the neuro-ophthalmologist, and they would say, your vision is fine. Your vision is normal. And I'm like, well, I can't see. I'm running into things. I, I could not park in a normal parking lot. I had to park away from things. And the pain just became excruciating. Um, and as a neurologist and as a Parkinson's doctor, you know, my training was that, well, you know, we don't get visual problems with Parkinson's. We don't get, um, you know, pain syndromes with Parkinson's. You know, people with Parkinson's, after they had Parkinson's for a while, um, they do have some pain issues, but not that type of pain that uh, I was experiencing. So uh, in a way, it was my training that was kind of hindering, you know, also that, well, I have Parkinson's symptoms, but then I also have these other things that, you know, don't really go along with that. And so began my whole uh, search for two years of seeing doctors, of course, we have to rule out the usual, you know, lupus and fibromyalgia and MS and, you know, strokes and tumors and everything else. So I've had, I had every test done that you can imagine except uh, of a brain biopsy. So, you know, I I can pretty much, yeah, discuss about anything uh, because I had everything done. So finally, after two years, symptoms were not going away. I was irritable. I was fatigued. I was tired, and we really hadn't dealt with the Parkinson's issues, which were getting worse. The part, of the motor Parkinson's symptoms, um, the stiffness, the slowness. You know, the the handwriting and and so on. So I talked to one of my colleagues, and I said, you know. I've been to several other neurologists, and, you know, we can't can't find a diagnosis, but I'm really exhausted. I can't function in my practice. I'm having trouble, you know, doing things at home with my family. So I like to get your opinion. And so, um, you know, my my colleague, which is she's an extra special um, person, and she's very, very bright. You know, I told her, I said, if this is psychiatric, because, you know, by this time, uh, a lot of my colleagues were saying, well, why would you have Parkinson's at your age? And, and even my husband was saying, well, you've been hanging around with your Parkinson's patients too long. You just, you think you have the symptoms because you've been, you know, uh, taking care of them and you're, you're taking in their, you know, their, their diseases. And I was like, well, I don't think so. But I said, if this, I told my friend, I said, this is psychiatric or this is, you know, I need to know because I need to get better. Um, And so she told me after, you know, running some tests and examining me and everything, she said, you know, Maria, it's in your head, but not like you think it's not psychological. You have Parkinson's. And so the the question still was, what about this pain? And what about this, you know, um, this visual problems? (laughs) And so we decided to treat the Parkinson's and then, you know, since we hadn't found anything else um, and lo and behold, my pain went away and my uh, visual symptoms went away. Uh, And that's when I started realizing that, you know, there's a lot more, even as a specialist, uh, that we don't know that there's so, I started thinking about my patients, you know, I've, I've thought about patients, you know, that discuss and describe, you know, of uh, visual problems and, you know, more severe pain. And I thought, you know, there's, there, we're missing a whole side of it. Um, and so that was part of my journey and why I decided to, to become a, an advocate, um, to try to change the science, to try to understand the pathophysiology and the disease better. And I'm glad and I'm happy to know that in the uh, 15 years now that I've had the disease, I think we talk about the non-motor symptoms a lot more than we used to. And we realize that, especially women, have a lot more, um, you know, pain and fatigue and can have visual problems. And so um, I think that that has improved, perhaps, the diagnosis. We're still lagging behind in getting early diagnosis, especially if you're a young woman. But I think that when people present with those symptoms, they're not... Automatically said, well, you need to go see a uh, pain specialist or you know a rheumatologist or maybe this fibromyalgia or something else. That we're actually maybe starting to think, you know, could they have Parkinson's? Yeah. So yeah,
0: I um, I I heard you say the word advocate, and I think about um, you know it, it's to me it's really clear that. You're well known as an advocate for young onset and improving early diagnosis, but I'm wondering if you could share with us some of the myths and some of the improper perceptions that are related to women with young onset.
1: Yes, well, because I think that, not just women, but um, I think that young onset Parkinson's um, tend to have a lot more non motor symptoms, meaning they have a lot more anxiety, a lot more depression, you know, sleeping problems they do have the stiffness and the slowness and they have more dystonia. And so um, Parkinson's may not be the first thought of that, that may think of focal or generalized dystonia, They may think of other diseases, but particularly when it is a woman, uh, we still have that misperception that young women um, that have, you know, a lot of what may be called psychological issues, you know, that they automatically thought of, you know, they're having depression, they're having some hormonal problems, they're having, you know, uh, coping problems, and they don't really, uh, we still have that problem in medicine that we don't think about it, hey, there may be an underlying cause, neurological cause or medical cause for those problems. Um, And so I think that that's been the, the misperception, trying to, um, as I talked in my book about the hysteria, you mm-hmm. know, and then well, I thought that maybe they just did a hysterectomy, maybe they, you know, but but we've learned so much even in the time that I've been, um, practicing neurology and movement disorders. You know, we used to think of Tourette's and tics as a psychological disorder, and now we know it's a movement disorder. So, and that's happened just in my lifetime since I've been a physician. So. I think there's still so much that we don't know about the brain and the way things present, and uh, I'm hoping that this will lead us to understanding um, the the brain better and the pathology better, and, and and understanding young onset. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, I think everyone that has it and everyone that loves someone that has it uh, is so hopeful for a cure in our own lifetime. But I think most people would settle if you. If you will, um, for an effective treatment that would keep it at bay, and you could live, you know, a normal life without all of the side effects of as the dose goes up, the bigger chance of dyskinesia and such. But when sure. I when I speak publicly, um, the fir- one of the first things the questions I get from the audience is always about medication related, and so for me, not being a physician. I just always put that back that, you know, you need to speak to your, your movement disorder specialist or your neurologist that or pharmacist that, you know, I'm not the right person for that. But when I read your book, I was very intrigued by the information on velvet beans. And so yes. I, I don't know how, uh, you know, common or familiar people are with that or the Nescafe, I think, or the cowage seed. And so I want to know if you could explain what that is and where the research is headed around that.
1: Well, unfortunately, the velvet beans, um, they have been around, um, they're called the the fava beans. They're also, and I'm sorry, I'm forgetting the the other name, the macuna uh, macuna, um, seeds. And they're very, um, they're kind of like a, coffee bean and they're very velvety on the outside and they have they're very prickly so if you touch it you can get you know allergic reaction or you can get kind of poisonous so you have to, you know, uh get rid of that. But they have mentioned this back like at least five thousand years ago, back in the older, you know, old um history in India, people that that has symptoms that resemble Parkinson's, whether, you know, it was Parkinson's or not, you know, very similar descriptions, you know, in the literature. And they used to drink this tea uh, with this uh, bean, and it would help. And um, there were some studies done, um, maybe, God, I forget, um, last century, you know, back in about 20, 30 years ago. And they discovered that it was very beneficial. However, um, it was a very small study. And why it was never pursued, I don't know. It's still not pursued. Um, it did cause a lot of nausea though, but we know that the levodopa, uh, has a lot of nausea and that's why we have to do carbidopa. But when they compare the small study, they compare the cinnamon to the, the fava bean or the macuna, um, it did have the same effect or even better effect on the people, you know, that have Parkinson's. So why we don't use it more, I don't know. I know that, um, a lot of people in Latin America, uh, in Mexico, South America, buy this over-the-counter. You can buy it on Amazon, you can buy it uh, in some, you know, uh, holistic stores, and they make tea. The problem with that is that because every, uh, you know, that every um, vitamin and, and things that don't go through the FDA don't have regulations in mm. their... Um, they are distilled differently the purification is different the, the amount of uh, the active drug or the active you know ingredient is yeah different so so that's the problem that they haven't there's no regulation so people can buy this and make tea, but you don't really know what the doses, you know correlation to um you know a 25 100 cinnamon or how many you know teas you need to take in a day to have the same effect or whether is going to be equivalent in decreasing or improving the symptoms long-term, but people do take it and do get benefit. Uh, But again, because it's not regulated and every country gets it from a different source, um, we don't have an idea. And I've talked to several um, researchers that do holistic uh, medicines to see if they will study it and it's been kind of they say yes, but then nothing's really happened. So I'm not really sure what the why is not being studied or or um, processed more um, than than you know the the small studies. But uh, there is potential for that, and I wish we could. Yeah. <laughs> we could uh, there's some studies for that? Because yeah. I have talked to the university here; they do a lot of holistic and. And a lot of research and, and they were very interested there for a while and they said they were gonna look into it, but then nothing really happened, so uh, I'm not sure what the drive is. Yeah. Uh, maybe monetary, maybe the you know, the drug companies. I, I really don't know. Yeah,
0: I'm not sure. Uh interesting nonetheless. So I'm I'm gonna pivot us a little bit here and um talk a little bit about dopamine. So the medication uh-huh. question leads right into, you know, people living with Parkinson's Understand that there's a lack, or that the lack of movement is caused by a lack of dopamine in our brains. In your book, you talked about serotonin and how it's also related, related to the disease. I'm wondering if you could just expand a little on how, how they're related and how the inter, interaction between them may hold the key to a cure.
1: Well, um, because we have learned uh, over the years that although dopamine plays a, a huge vital role, and we've always considered dopamine to be the pivotal um, chemical that is missing um, as a, that, that causes the uh, you know the uh, to to be depleted to look white instead of black, and and to cause the movement disorder, and also is the one that that is responsible for the learning. Uh, the cognitive, the, the being able to uh, to balance, and also um, the reward system, you know. So it's very important in that. However, we realize that it is not the only drug in the is not the only chemical in the brain. The, chem, the there are several chemicals in the brain, but early onset of Parkinson's, as I said, have a lot of non-motor symptoms that include olfactory loss, you know, that's loss of smell, that that um, talks about uh, disruption of sleep, that causes, you know, depression, and all of those things are regulated not by dopamine, but but by a chemical known as serotonin, Uh, and especially the sleep. Uh, centers in the brainstem, they are much, uh, they're very uh, related to serotonin. So I often wondered if a serotonin, the one that initiates, you know, if that's the one that um, has the problem initially um, in the brain and triggers the symptoms and as the brain tries to compensate, uh, because the brain is a fascinating organ. And that is in constant equilibrium God made a perfect um, system that is constantly so it's, it's a lot of uh, pluses and minus to keep balance mm-hmm. so if one thing goes up another thing goes down and so it's always you know trying to to keep a homeostasis in equilibrium so I'm wondering if you know when the serotonin goes down then we're trying to somehow the brain you know kicks in uh, to try to compensate for that and so then that's how we get into. Uh, trouble, kind of like when a car starts uh, misbehaving or not working well, you know. Then you're suddenly, you know, it's missing one thing like gas like oil, and then suddenly it, it puts the um, the motor in overdrive and everything else starts, you know. Then then uh, being used faster or you know they, it gets into trouble. Yeah. And so that's kind of how I wonder with the brain um, that perhaps is the serotonin because people with migraines uh, that have auras. Um, have increased risk for Parkinson's and migraines, we know is serotonin uh, related. So I often wonder if this is where it in, initiates in the brainstem and also with the gut problems, there's a lot of serotonin and dopamine, uh, but just wonder if that's what's triggering the system to, to be abnormal. Um, and, and we see this when, when we replace dopamine um, in patients with Parkinson's, and I've seen this in myself, I've seen it in my patients, um, if you replace dopamine without replacing anything else, uh, eventually patients will get very depressed, and and I think that's because we're overriding the dopamine and we're really lowering the other chemicals, and one of them is the serotonin, so I often think that, and, and the way i treated my patients and the way I am treated is that we always try to keep a balance of not just the dopamine, but also try to keep serotonin in the brain to try to maintain a balance. So far, I didn't see very many depression or suicidal thoughts in my patients because I always try to think of the brain as a organ that needs to be balanced. So it needs a little bit of sprinkle of everything, not just dopamine, but needs a little bit of, you know, uh, serotonin, needs a little bit of glutamate, it needs a little bit of norepine. So it needs a little bit of everything to try to maintain that balance. And that's the way I've been treated. I take multiple medications that act differently. And I've had Parkinson's for 15 years, whether I don't know whether that's what's keeping me going this well. But that's, that was the approach I took on my patients as a general holistic, and my patients in general did not have some of the things that people often complain about, like uh, the OCD, the severe depression, the severe uh, dementia, and things, because we try to balance um, the different uh, medications across the border that would target different chemicals. Gotcha. Again, that's my... That's my own, uh, you know, uh, belief and inclination. And that's the way I treated my patients. And I'm just telling you what, you know, my patient population was like. Yes, I did have patients with dementia. Yes, I did have patients with psychosis and, and you know, some depression and some OCD. But it was very minimal compared to what I hear in other, you know, patients talk about. Mm-hmm. And in and, and my own experience, that the only time... That I started taking, um, I up my dopamine without, um, rather, uh, up my neural uh, dopamine agonist without do- uh, upping my dopamine. I did get some OCD, not to the point that uh, you know that it was severe, but i noticed a difference that, and when I you know we up the dopamine, then you know, symptoms went away. So I, I somehow think that it's related to to the balance yeah. of what we're doing yeah. uh, with that. So I don't think, yes, these drugs can have a potential, and I think they all can have a potential to cause these problems, but I think it's, the, it's trying to maintain that balance that, that does the trick.
0: Well, thinking about medications, and um, there, there always seems to be a debate Um, I hear people talking about when, when should we start medication? You know, there's the thought of we should wait because we don't want people to use it all up, so to speak, and then have such high doses that you, um, develop dyskinesia. And then there's the other thought to start right away. And I heard, um, a physician out of, uh, Cleveland, no, no Cleveland clinic that said it's, if you don't start right away, it's kind of like having a brand new set of golf clubs in the, in the closet but waiting to use them for five or ten years, so I don't know what your thought uh, around when you start medication is. But I'm hoping that you'll share that with us.
1: Yes, well, I am of the belief, um, like many neurologists um, or movement disorders, that the earlier the better. That's why we want to diagnose early. The earlier you diagnose, the earlier you can start treatment. The the better the long-term prognosis. Although we don't have a lot of data that says, you know, whether, um, how fast they're going to get into trouble, um, I think that, that the few studies I have of initiating treatment early um, does show, uh course, for um, starting treatment early. It's kind of, um, again, not using something. You know, if you have a beautiful, you know, um, Stradivarius violin that uh, you play it all the time and you use it even though it's a hundred years old it will work perfectly as soon as you stop using it and put it in the closet for a couple of you know months guess what it's going to uh weather away and it was funny because actually you know when i stopped working uh, i've had my stethoscope for 30 years okay and it was perfectly in shape you know the rubber was perfectly uh working you couldn't tell it was 30 years old it was used all the time and of course as soon as i stopped working of course i put it in my closet hadn't used it a year later i tried to use it um to you know to to listen to my daughter's lungs or something and the whole rubber just fell apart just everything just you know the, the, the ear pieces so You know, there was nothing wrong with that stethoscope as long as it was being used. And it's the same thing with the the medication. We want to do early diagnosis to keep the body, to keep the brain functioning at its most capacity. Because then when you lose neurons, when you lose those chemicals, you try to replace it, you're never going to go back to the point where you were. You may, you know, keep it from regressing more. But you're not going to be able to bring it to that unused, you know, pristine state that you had before. And I think that that's why, you know, you use. There was one study that said that initiating dopamine, uh, levodopa, early on uh, was neuroprotective because um, they they looked at patients that didn't start it. They looked at patients that started the, the dopamine, the levodopa right away, and then they looked at patients that started it like six months or a year later. The people that started a year later never caught up in their functions to the people that started as soon as the diagnosis. Yeah. So I think there is benefit for starting it. And, and one of the things that people were afraid of, and I think, you know, we, ha- we forget this, that back. Twenty years ago um, we had one drug we had levodopa cinnamon and we didn't have any other drugs from 1968 all the way to 1990 we had no really no other Parkinson's drugs except levodopa so we knew that they were going to cause dyskinesia so everybody was afraid that yes, let's not use it because at some point you're going to have dyskinesias and we really don't have anything else to give. But this is 2021. We have about 50 drugs that we can use in combination. We have drugs that are patches, we have IV drugs, we have infusion drugs, we have, uh, you know, injection drugs, um, nasal sprays. We have all kinds of drugs. And so there is really, I always say in this day and age, in 2021, there's absolutely no reason why anybody should have to suffer and live with the disease for more than a month without starting a treatment because we have so many options and we don't have to fear like we did 20, 30 years ago that, well, this is the only drug we have and we are going to eventually, yes, we're gonna eventually use it up we're eventually going to have dyskinesias but that's not the case now because again we have you know 40 50 drugs that we can use alone or in combination so that's a lot of treatment and although we don't have a cure the hope is there i'm so excited to be living now because even though we don't have a cure people can have better lives better quality of life be more active because we do have so many treatments and we do have better understanding of the disease yeah
0: you know when i think about that question um the thing that comes to my mind is that when you take medication early on you're able to exercise it just kind of you know boost all the the possibilities for exercising and when we exercise we exercise today for a better tomorrow. We're stronger. We're, you know, our, our gait is better. Our balance is better. Our core strength is better. And we might not be able to do that without medication. So in my mind, I'm not, I'm not a physician, but in my mind, that's one reason why it's beneficial to start early. But when we think about the treatment of um, Parkinson's um, and you think about medication treatments, we now have surgical treatments. So, I'm um, curious what your view is on deep brain stimulation.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, going back, just let me say one thing about the dopamine is important to start early because that's the only medicine that really tackles the cognitive function. Mm-hmm. Um, that That's the only drug, and I tell you from experience that when I first took um, the dopamine, levodopa, is like I felt switch back on that my brain was back to normal i was able to think and process and uh when my functions start going down i know it's time for dopamine levodopa to increase although i take all these other medicines but that is the one medicine that deals with cognitive function and ability and so it is very important to maintain that cognitive status Um, But going back to the the DVS, DVS has been around. It was being tested, and this is how old I am, uh, being tested when I was a fellow. So even during that time, it was already proven that it was very beneficial. This was before it was FDA approved, and and it became mainstay. I mean, it's been around for nearly 30 years. So it's not a new medicine. It's not a new treatment. It's been around. We know a lot about it. Um, There's different – now there's different um, – Pharmaceutical not pharma- well, pharmaceutical industries that, that do the DVS. There's three types, so they have different leads, different programming, uh, different sizes of you know monitors. So we've come a long way, and I think it's still a very good choice. Um, I think that for people that um, have uh, clear uh, Parkinson's uh, disease, they're having trouble uh, with medication tolerability uh or having uh, fluctuations uh, or having a lot of tremors they are the best candidate for for the dbs because it will buy you time it doesn't cure you but it's kind of like you are taking a medicine without having to take the pills and it will protect your brain until the time comes where maybe something else is needed and so I think that that's the, the benefit of the DBS, that if you are able to be a surgical candidate, yes, it is still brain surgery, so not everybody can have brain surgery, although the risks are very minimal and it's been done for years and years. Um, I think that if if you are a candidate, that it's, the, it's a great therapy uh, because it minimizes the treatments that you have to take orally or otherwise, uh, and it preserves the brain, and it can always be stopped or pulled or whatever if something else uh, is needed in the future. So I think it's something that we unfortunately don't offer very much. And it is difficult because uh, I think that the biggest um, problem to it, uh, although it's gotten a little bit better, but I've had patients that uh, had DBS and because I worked in a small um, community, I didn't have access to being able to um to monitor, to to regulate it. And they were my patients got to a point, some of them got to a point they were not able to travel to the centers to have the adjustments. So then it became a useless, you know, kind of thing. So so that's the one thing that you have to the centers where most of this is is done is at the big universities mm-hmm. uh, so having small communities although now um, medtronics for sure i'm not sure about the other ones they are able to allow the physicians to have the equipment because before the physicians has to buy in and i did not want to spend you know like fifty thousand dollars in equipment for two patients you know right. uh, they had those so um but now I think it's a little bit easier so because it's been around for so long that that you can have more options but that's something you always have to talk to the doctor when you're considering it. am I going to continue to be able to travel to the areas where I need to have the adjustment because if you're not then it's really no sense in going through a whole uh, surgical procedure and all that if you're not going to really use it.
0: Yeah. If someone is considering DBS, um, where in their diagnosis should they begin to to think about that? You know, you hear a lot really common around the fifth year. There seems to be this, you know, magical number of five years where medication sometimes will begin to alter a little. And so I'm just uh, wondering when should someone, if they're considering that, when's the best time to have that?
1: Well, you uh, know, we used to think about it late stage just because it was you know came as a added uh, tool but certainly early onset could happen the problem is that the reason i think most people get it around five years is not that five years is a magical number other than um everybody's parkinson's progresses differently and right now we without any markers for parkinson's we don't have a 100% way to say you have Parkinson's with a blood test or a scan or something like that. It is still dependent on a uh, clinical diagnosis. And the clinical diagnosis, it is still uh, based on four cardinal motor symptoms. So if you don't have all four motor symptoms, then you're not going to be diagnosed as a Parkinson's patient fully diagnosed as Parkinson's. So that may take a while. Uh, even for me, relating to me, I've had it for 15 years. I've been diagnosed with Parkinson's for 15 years, but it was not till about maybe eight or nine years that I really fully developed the tremors. I mean, I've had tremors on and off. tremors, and they're still very, very mild compared to all my other symptoms. So if I had, if my doctor had to wait to offer me DVS, she could not do it until she was sure that I had the four symptoms. And that's the problem, that uh, we as neurologists still are bound by the criteria, bound by the, what we have as a diagnosis. And if we don't have those cardinal symptoms, uh, shown, we even though in our heart of hearts know it's Parkinson's and have all the things that we're treating them as Parkinson's, we're not going to suggest a treatment like DVS if it turns out it could be Lewy body mm. or you know Parkinson's Plus or something else, right? So, so that's that's the that's where we really need that, um, that marker.
0: Gotcha. Well, it has been a delight to to talk to you today. I feel like there's been so much information for people listening, um, and I appreciate you joining me. Is there anything else that you would like to share before we close today?
1: No, other than I want people to have, um, to not be discouraged, and to think about the fact that we come so far, and that there's new treatments and new medicines, and not to be discouraged when one medicine doesn't work um from experience treating patients and 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 you know having the disease sometimes you know as we age as our bodies change um, our ability to tolerate medications changes so it is important to always keep an open mind and when something doesn't work unless you had an allergic reaction to short from that don't be adverse to try it again to say okay yeah i tried it last time but didn't really have the effect i wanted but maybe this time because now i'm taking different medicines now because my condition is different you may get a different result and that's happened to me Mm -hmm. um i've been on medicine and um Well, particularly for instance, you know, patients with Mirapex they can do really well for for years or the same thing with requip. But then after about ten years, the medicine just doesn't work as well. And sometimes all it takes is going off the medicine for a good six months and coming back to it and then you get it as new. Okay? So sometimes again, letting your brain rest, Mm -hmm. letting that equilibrium, you know, change and, and have that. I have tried medicines that didn't agree with me initially. There were Eh, you know, had side effects, and then, you know, later on, went back a year, two years later, tried it, and had been wonderful, and had, you know, tolerated it. So, again, it has to do with what's going on in your body at the time. I see this in older people, you know, patients been on on um, blood pressure medicines all their life, and all of a sudden they start having problems, and they come in, and they say, you know, I've been on this medicine, why isn't I working? Your body is age, you know, your liver function, you know, is not the same. So that's why we always have to keep in mind that it is important to try new medicines or retry medicines in different combinations because the combination itself may be the key. So not to give up and say, well, I've tried everything, I've done everything, there's really nothing else. Because Very few people with all the choices we have now, that would be very rare.
0: Yeah. I think the resounding message I hear from our time together today is to have some flexibility. That there is hope. It is not a death sentence. It's not your grandfather's Parkinson's. Um, and it may your life may not be what you thought it was gonna going to be, but that doesn't mean it can't be good.
1: Exactly. Exactly. You still can, you know, have a full life. You still can, you know, do the things you, you have, have a new dream, have goals. Yes, it's gonna be harder. Yes, you're going to have to reinvent yourself. Yes, there are going to be days that you go, why, and want to stay in bed and cry, but just don't let that be the norm. You know, get up, cry, shout, whatever you have to do, but then say, okay, let's do it again. Uh, and find a passion, you know, whether it's dance, whether it's exercise, whether it's your family, whether it's anything, you will know, find a reason to get up. Find a reason to go out. Find a reason to keep fighting. Uh, because the one thing that I've, truly I've been saying this, you know, for 15 years. And even before when I was, you know, treating patients, find a reason to keep going. Uh, but now with the pandemic, you know, it's, it's easier to lose that, that hope. It's easier to get in a rut because every day is the same. You know, I've been stuck here in the house for a month and, you know, you think like, well, you know, yesterday, today, you know, it's the same. So why do anything? But when you lose that, that function, and that's why it's important to have, um, Goals, or to even have you know, talk to a friend on Zoom, or you know, schedule little meetings, schedule little exercise, schedule little things, because it'll give you that that focus, that goal to break the routine, to break the you know monotonous cycle, and give you that boost to be able to move forward and do something, so that you don't feel like you're just like there, you know, a bumping yeah. along. So,
0: well, I thank you so very much. And I Thank know, Teresa, yeah,
1: so
0: well, I know that our listeners are going to really benefit from your um, opinion, your advice and your medical advice and your own, you know, your own story. So um, I, I'm just so grateful for your time if, if today.
1: If you have any questions, you can email them to me if they have questions. Okay. Uh, We're glad to answer. And if, you know, if they want a book, it's on Amazon. Or okay. In order for me, if, if they want an autograph book. They can, you know, um, let me know. Okay. But it's on Amazon, and I thank you again. And and I hope everybody has a blessed new year and a happy, healthy one.
0: Yes, indeed. Thank you so much.
1: Thank
0: you. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye.